For a moment, the silence was absolute. A pause had come between the soft, cool gusts of the little wind, leaving this aching silence in the faint light of stars. The mouth of the tunnel lay to the south. It was a black hole in the grey of the gloom. Northwards, there stood the signal box, with a yellow gleam making a blotch of light that picked out the thin threads of the rails and drew them towards the tunnel. A mass of leaves lay silent, sprawled across the land from here to the roadway. In them, no bird sang as late as this. The train's sound came as softly as if the wind had blown up again to touch the leaves, but in moments the sound grew too great for the wind, and the thin-drawn metals between the tunnel and the signal box carried it here, trembling to the coming of vast weight at speed. The sound reached the stones of the tunnel and began to echo, clamoring in and calling down through the heart of the hill, long before the train became a point of light between the shadows of the landscape. It was the midnight, from London to the coast. From the signal box, a man watched it, his shirt-sleeved arm crooked at the window. The long, linked blaze of it came by, thrusting into the hill, and its whistle screamed, as if in sudden terror of the dark. One by one the bright links were lost, and there was gloom again. Slowly the tumult died, leaving a long-drawn sigh in the tunnel's throat. Then, after minutes, the silence was back, numbed and absolute. The gleam of yellow that was shed downwards from the signal box picked out the threads of the rails, and the heap of stones below the steps, and the gradient post on the far side of the track, and the white face of the man who lay on his back. He lay a dozen yards from the tunnel, his limbs flung out awkwardly in the untidiness of death. His eyes stared at the stars. His mouth said nothing. His hands held only stones, and the dark of his own quick blood. He had come to be here when the train had screamed, as if in sudden terror of the dark. The cat sat with statuesque quiet at the end of the limed oak desk. It stared at Bishop. Only once, in the past few minutes, had it moved its head, to follow a curl of smoke that had gone drifting up from Bishop's pipe. Smoke fascinated the princess Chu Yi Sin. She was a Siamese, and perhaps her oriental mind composed fantasics of smoke as she watched it moving in the quiet air but much more likely she was thinking of edible fish and the cream off the top of the milk. Scat, said Bishop. She sprang off the desk and be damned to him. Hugo? Yes. Miss Gorringe sat behind the smaller desk, halfway down the long, cool room. Her own was less cluttered with bric-a-brac. Instead of green jade ornaments, she had a stock of neat black files, perfectly tabulated. Instead of tobacco jars, pipes, motor magazines, and ivories, she had an array of notebooks and reference tables that would have delighted a chief editor whose business was curious crime. Miss Vera Gorringe, M.A., was a good lieutenant, a well-groomed, middle-aged, elegantly-dressed, electric brain with a sense of humour and a flair for unearthing the unearthly. She was doing it, even now. She said— Professor Scobie won't be dining with us tonight. Bishop swung his lean head to face her. Ah, what's his excuse? The best in the world, she said. He's dead. His mouth tightened instinctively. Slowly he said, Professor Scobie is dead, 
Yes. Listen. She folded the newspaper exactly down the middle and began reading. The body of Professor Gordon Scurby was found shortly after midnight last night near Henford Tunnel on the London Brinton line. One of the younger members of the jet development team at Farley Research Centre, he was believed to have been on board the last train to the coast on his way to Brinton. It is thought that he fell from his compartment soon after the train passed through Henford. The police do not at the moment suspect foul play, but fuller inquiries are being made. Professor Scobie was 43.